And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But he answered, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to to her for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And when she went home, found the child lying in her bed and the demon was gone. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Um, As we, uh, as we open up into Mark, I wanted to just kind of uh, address in the beginning of service, we talked about what happened in Charleston and how our um, liturgy is very intentionally kind of directed to lament with the people of Charleston today. And um, I, I want to just kind of put something in front of you that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, a pastor during World War II, and he would say um, to not say anything about evil is evil, right? To not say something is evil. To not act is to act. To not speak is to speak. And um, guys, listen, you can go on Facebook and Twitter and everybody, everybody has an opinion about what's going on. And, um, and I, my fear in, in the midst of that, and as I've kind of processed it and, and um, chatted with the elders a little bit about that is, is kind of thinking through how do we as a church um, talk about some of these things. And, and I don't think today is the day because I think just right now would be a good time just to, to lament and mourn. But there is something that we want to talk about. And our fear is that um, we're going to get all of our sound bites from CNN and Fox News. And that's how we're going to be discipled. But then yet we don't know how the, the Bible kind of addresses some of these issues. And so um, I want to give you a heads up. And we weren't going to announce it today. But in light of Charleston, I know that some of you guys are kind of um, and if even asked, are we going to talk about this at all? And we are, um, but it just will not be today. We're going to let um, uh, time do what it needs to. And then we're going to talk about three very specific issues. We're going to take a break from Mark. Um, and the first Sundays, the very first Sunday in August, the first Sunday in October, and the first Sunday of November, we had a slide, I don't know if we do or not, but um, we're going to do something called For the People. And um, if you don't know what the word politics means, it just means for the people. And we're going to talk about three political issues that we feel like are a big deal. Um, and so the, the first thing we're going to talk about in, in the first, first Sunday in August is race. Um, we we want to address and, and really begin to process what do things like Trayvon, Trayvon Martin, what, what do we as a church, Bible-believing, um, Christ-following people, what, do we ha- what should we be saying? How should we be acting? And um, we're going to talk about that whole deal, uh, the brokenness within that. We're also going to talk about the, the following Sunday. We're going to talk about birth or life. Um, I know that these are going to be controversial, controversial issues. And so we're going to talk about what does that mean to be pro-life or how do we begin to process some of that. And so we're going to talk about um, the, the issue of abortion. And then lastly, we're going to talk about um, homosexuality. So we felt like these are three things that as a church, um, we need to begin to open dialogue about. If nothing else, we need to recognize that there is a broken piece in all of this. And so we want to say, hey, here's the political issues, quote unquote, we can talk about them. Okay. And so that's what we're going to do. I wanted to give you a heads up because I know some of you guys were asking specifically about the race piece. So that is the plan. We're going to take a break from Mark in the first Sunday, starting in August, um, in August, September, and October, and talk about those three issues. So with that being said, um, Mark chapter 7, if you, you, you're probably already there. Before we get there, um, I, I want to just say something very specifically because i got a lot of preface work for us to get to Mark. We've been going through Mark 
Uh, geez, since we've started, four months now. And uh, I've said the same thing every single week. We, the reason we're going through Mark and Redemption is going through Mark and we have the opportunity to do this um, all at the same time is because Mark um, is very explicit in the idea that it's not, it, you have a, a small little counter in Mark 8 and at the end, but for the most part, as you read Mark, no one knows who Jesus is. And, and we're going to sit here and say, all of our life is all about Jesus. Well, who's Jesus and what is Jesus about? And, and as we pick up the gospel of Mark, we get to begin to, to see people who don't know what Jesus is about or who Jesus is. We begin to reflect on, okay, here's what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. Now, because of that, um, we're moving into Mark chapter 8, which is our halfway point in Mark. And I say that because our passage today um, is three different stories. It's a story of a, a possessed little girl that Jesus heals. A, bl- a deaf man that Jesus heals, and there's 4,000 people who are hungry, and Jesus feeds. And what's crazy about this is if you've been in the book of Mark with us from the beginning, these stories are not that new. I mean, we've seen a demon-possessed man healed. We've seen the, the, the hungry fed. We've seen the sick restored, okay? So here's, here's um, what I want to do. Um, I want to read these stories, and I want to go through these, and I don't want to read these stories and springboard into something else, but because we're halfway, I want to read these stories, and it provides us a perfect opportunity to remind us what this gospel is about. And what I mean by that is if you were here the very first week, or maybe the second week, um, what you find in the gospel of Mark is Jesus says nothing in the very beginning. It's just Mark writing down who Jesus is, John the Baptist, and the very first thing Jesus says when he comes onto the scene is he tells us to repent and believe, and then he makes this crazy declaration which pulses its way through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what we've done to this point, if we, we have seen glimpses of this kingdom. Like, right, so listen, Charleston does not exist on the new earth. The city exists. Well, I, whatever, that's a whole nother. But like the, the murders that take place, they, they, that doesn't happen on the new earth. One day this kingdom will be fully restored as God is doing what he's doing. And, and, and the fear of waking up in the middle of the night that someone might break in, the fear of loss of son or daughter, the pain, the hurt of death, it will be no more. That, that will not exist anymore. And Jesus, while he's on the earth, is giving us glimpses of what that looks like. We have seen that demon possession and sickness and hunger don't exist. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about very specifically who Jesus goes after. Because if if we're going to be in the middle of Mark, we've seen what Jesus does this morning. We're going to talk about and look at very specifically the people that he's engaging with, because um, I think this will be a big uh, thrust for for our church in knowing what we need to do um, with the the gospel that we have received. And, And here's where we're going to start. If you pick up your Bible um, in the very beginning of Genesis, you're going to notice that God begins to talk with uh, this guy named Abraham. And through Abraham, God eventually selects a people. Um, he decides in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that he is going to select this people Israel. Okay? Now, why he selects Israel and he doesn't select the Midianites or the Canaanites or the Philistines, I don't know. But he chooses this people. And from this people, what we find is kind of this throbbing throughout the Old Testament that God is constantly integrating himself in their life, that he um, is giving these people the law. It is to these people that are given the prophets, and it is eventually through these people that the Messiah is going to come. And so because of that, when Jesus arrives on the scene, um, it's a very Jewish context. It's a context in, a context in which everyone knows that the Jews, that the, the Israelites, not are just monotheistic, believing in one God, but they are very exclusively monotheistic. There is one God, and all your other gods are wrong, they're false, they're idols, okay? And because of that, everyone knows that there's this, um, the Jewish people, and then us. 
That, that, that's every, so in Jesus' time, this is, it's different. Like right now we get everyone's under the banner of Christ, but it wasn't always like that. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he's a very Jewish man, and he's in a very Jewish context. And in that Jewish context, there are Jews, and then there are not Jews. Those not Jews are the term, and maybe you've heard this, called Gentiles, anyone who is not a Jew. And so Jesus now begins to rub elbows with people, and we find um, this first kind of encounter with this woman. And, and it's important because it's, it, the words that Jesus are going to say seem to come off harsh. But you find in John 4 the same idea. Jesus meets a woman at a well. He saw it in there talking her, hey, can I have some water? And she clearly says, you're a Jewish man. Why are you talking to me? Not Jewish and I'm a woman. Why are you talking to me? And there's a clear understanding we can get from that dialogue that she understands the way that the, the Jews or way that the culture is in that context. And so now we have Jesus who just blew up the Pharisees, just blew them up and their legalistic tendencies. Um, from that moment now, he leaves to separate himself. And we have this first, um, uh, our first text, and we got more text than what I originally read, but here's what it says, verse 24. And from there he rose, going after, after he just blew up the Pharisees, rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So Tyre and Sidon are kind of, um, just so you know, they're, they're removed very much so from the Sea of Galilee where he's been. They're on the coast here, and uh, they're main merchant towns. They're big areas, very Gentile. They're we're currently where Lebanon is, if you, if you know your, your uh, geography pretty well. Verse 25, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. So here is Jesus with his disciples. He's sitting there to remove himself because he's been dealing with Pharisees, he's been dealing with crowds, and he is, uh, uh, in this moment, no other way to say it, especially in Matthew's account, to really begin to pour into his disciples. He's there to, to have a moment to really pour into his disciples. And there's this woman, this Seraphonician, who's from the region. Um, she, she comes in and she begins to beg Jesus to heal uh, her daughter. Her daughter's filled with this unclean spirit, this demon. And we've seen this story before over and over and over. And over. Now, now, what's crazy is in the account of Matthew, um, the parallel account of this, she actually comes to Jesus. And when she comes to Jesus, it says she begged, but the tense there, and it, and it tells us this in Matthew, she continues to beg, like over and over and over again, continues to plead. So much so, because at first Jesus kind of remains silent, which I will explain is kind of weird at first. He remains silent, and, and she's continuing to beg. The disciples actually get annoyed and go, listen, this late, just heal her daughter. Please heal her daughter. She's unbelievably annoying, okay? Now, now what, what, what Jesus does in that moment is he begins to engage with this woman, and we'll, we'll see uh, uh, how this takes place. Um, now, I need you to understand, too, uh, who she is, this Seraphonician, is, is a big deal, too, because, like I said, we're in Gentile territory. Um, Matthew also tells us she's a Canaanite. So when I said we're in a Jewish context, you've got to understand who Canaanites are, and maybe you don't, but there's a point in the Old Testament where actually the Jews try to exterminate the Canaanites. The Canaanites are the people who over and over are robbing and pillaging all the, all the Jews. Like you see this in, in the stories of Samson and Gideon, like this. It's the Canaanites who are going after the Jews. The Jews, no other way to say, hate the Canaanites. And she is a Canaanite woman, Seraphonician, Greek-speaking, comes to Jesus and begins to engage with them. She has no right in that culture, quote-unquote, to be. And this is what happens um, in verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, okay? For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you're like, dang, Jesus, okay? Um, so she's like, hey, um, I need you to heal my daughter. And Jesus goes, I, I got to feed the children first. Um, it wouldn't be right for me to take the children's bread and, and give it to you, the, the dog. 
Now, you're going, what Jesus do I follow again? Okay, um, let, let me help us get our mind around what, what's going on here. Um, the first thing is this. There's actually two words for dog. Um, so I want to just kind of um, at least alleviate some of the tension in the room. Um, there's, there's one that's this kind of dirty scoundrel type of dog. Um, and you see this actually in the Gospels, but this is not that type of dog. This is way more of a pet. It's actually, to be honest with you, it's the same way we would use like puppy love or um, any other weird dog term, dog tired. I don't know if that's, I'm kind of thinking stuff on that, like Austin Powers thinking of puns on the moment, but I can't think of anything else right now. Um, okay, so, so there's this idea of, of kind of using, and it's not this, it's not a derogatory term as much as it's coming across. It's way more of a, a house pet, like, hey, uh, someone taking care of, matter of fact, there's a, a quote that I think will help in some of this um, by a guy named R.C.H. Lenski. Um, the Greek term used by Jesus is uh, kuneria. This means little pet dog. The other word for dog shows that they have no owners but run wild and serve as scavengers. It is entirely different conception when Jesus speaks of little pet dogs and referring to the Gentiles. These have owners who keep them even in the house and feed them by throwing them bits from the table. This still sounds messed up, but, but just so you know, it's not as bad as it seems. The, the, the other thing is, is, is this. Um, Jesus is not obviously calling her a dog. He's, he is doing what Jesus always does and speaking in, in parables. In this moment, he is using this idea of, let me just explain how I've come. So let's go back to the beginning of our story. The Jews, the people of Israel, the context in which we're in, God gave them the law. God gave them the prophets. And now the Messiah is coming through them. And we're told in Romans 1 that Jesus, that the Messiah is going to come through first to the Jews and then for the Gentiles. There's a a chronological thing taking place here. Now, we later come to understand that the dividing wall, Ephesians tells us the dividing wall of hostility is broken down. But what what we know in this context very specifically is Jesus laments over the people of Israel. He weeps when they don't accept him. He is here to gather these lost sheep to bring people into this fold who are lost. These are the people of God that he has come for. Now, anybody we come to find out who has faith is welcome into that. And that's true of the Old Testament. Anyone who would have faith, we, we're told in uh, Romans 2.28 that um, he who circumcised at heart is a, uh, he who is a circumcised at heart is the real Jew. The one who is, who is uh, living by faith, who is trusting in Jesus is now in that fold. But very specifically right now, what we have before this dividing wall of hostility, Jesus is going to begin to open a door and he uses this parable to say, hey, listen, I, I, I got to take care of the children. Okay, I'm not just going to give the children and throw it to the dogs. And um, there's a lot of, I wish I can share all the commentaries. There's a lot of teaching that Jesus is doing in this moment. Um, and, and I'll tell you how uh, this all plays out. Just a, a quote real quick from Alan Black. The form of a statement is proverbial. And the basis of this proverb is not in antipathy to Gentiles, but a necessary Jewish focus for Jesus' earthly ministry, if that helps. Um, this is, this is uh, verse 28. I promise it's going to come together. Well, I hope it's going to come together. Um, but Jesus, or but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Now, now here's, here's what's crazy. I want to go back to, to, to verse uh, 27. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Is that a question? No, it's not a question. At least the way we read it in English. Hey, it's not right for me to do this. That is a statement. Statement is declaring something. A question is asking a question, right? So he in this moment is stating something. Yet she answers, and I want, it's very intentional here. She answers him with this. She answers him, yes, Lord. She answers. It's not a question. I understand it could be uh, the same way of reply, but it's not. And I'll, I'll tell you how. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And she goes, yeah, but if I'm a puppy, at least crumbs fall. Help take care of my daughter. I understand that I'm not sitting at the table. There's this recognition. And then suddenly what we come to find out is Jesus goes, whoa, because you've said this, your daughter's healed. 
And, and here's, here's how the NLT reads it, because this is the, the hinge that I hope will get your mind around. This is how the NLT reads this very specifically. Verse 27, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28, she replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Listen to verse 29. The New Living Translation chose to interpret this next section with these words very intentionally. Good answer. He said, now go home for the demon has left your daughter. Every commentary that I've read under the sun is Jesus in this moment is not making a declaration to this woman to demean her, but he is going at the very cultural norms of what's going on and testing where she's at. And, and it is a question. It is a, it is a, here's what's going on. The same reason he's silent and she answers properly. Ironically enough, a Seraphonician, uh, Greek speaking Gentile answers properly, but Jesus is blowing up Pharisees when they ask questions. And so Jesus is not in any way being unkind here. If he was unkind, um, he's breaking first Corinthians 13. Love is kind, right? So Jesus is very much being kind, but he's going at a systematic approach towards this woman so that she can begin to, to understand and we can begin to understand what's taking place. Okay. Now that's a lot of theology. I, I don't mean necessarily to, to bog you down, but let's keep going on. And we're going to come back to this passage. This is what it says. Uh, what we find in, uh, in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked into heaven. He sighed and he said to him, F, F, Fatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed. Here's this next story. We've seen this, haven't we? Before, what we had is some friends lower this man down who's paralyzed. Jesus healed him. Now here's this deaf dude. And we, well, the, the Greek actually t- seems to, to, to denote this idea. He has some hearing problems, so he can't properly talk. Jesus, weird things, puts his hands in his ears, um, spits, touches his tongue, I, I don't know what that has. Okay, so he does this, does this. He, he, he touches his tongue, and now he's able to talk. <laughs> in, in, all the, in every shot of irony, he's now able to talk, super jacked that he can talk. And he goes, hey, don't tell anyone this, okay? Which is hilarious because he's going to go, mom. And she's going to be like, well, you can talk. How? And he's going, well, um, okay. He's really putting him in a hard spot here. But Jesus heals this deaf man who can now talk, tells him not to talk, um, Rough. Um, Jesus just is, he's rough in this, this also today. Uh, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What I, what I want you to see is in verse 34, when all this goes on, before Jesus heals this man, he sighs. And, and, and there's a counterpart to this sighing. It, it happens again only a couple times in the New Testament. And we see in the moment in John 11, where Lazarus has died, and they're weeping, and Jesus, he sighs. There's this moment of groaning. He is seeing the brokenness of the world. This man who is, is, is trying to talk, my dad, who has a, a very bad stutter, watching him try to get jobs, seeing what that can do, and, and having a speech impediment, I, I, I can see, like, as he stutters, and he he can't talk and he's trying to get words out when he's excited. And, and sometimes people are talking to him and he doesn't know when, and it's, and it's rough. And now in this moment, Jesus heals him. But as Jesus seals this, sees this, he, he sighs at the brokenness in which he's looking at in all of his beauty and his kingdom. He heals this man. And then we go on to see 
um, the beginning of chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd. We've heard that before, haven't we? Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them down and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said, uh, the, he said these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he, set them, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat. And his disciples went to the district of Dalmanatha. Um, we definitely have seen this story. Um, if we remember, if you were here a couple of weeks back, Jesus is dealing with 5,000 men, probably 10,000 people. So his disciples somehow don't remember this, um, even though Jesus was trying to show them. And we, we see the same exact um, response by Jesus. He has compassion on the crowd. He tells these 4,000 people to sit down, and then he feeds them with these seven loaves. And, and originally, he, they brought back 12 loaves, 12 loaves of bread, and uh, 12 baskets full, sorry, of bread. And now they bring seven baskets full. Um, Jesus is doing his thing. And, and there are our three passages. We, we, we've kind of seen this, um, and I don't want us to grow calloused in any way. I mean, think about this. Jesus straight heals a demon-possessed little girl. There's a deaf dude who he, he makes well, like he can hear now. He doesn't have a stutter anymore. And there's 4,000 people who are hungry. He made seven loaves of bread to feed 4,000 people. Again, insane. I don't want to diminish what's going on. What I want to do, though, is I want to focus on who this is happening to because you can't help but wonder Mark, who's getting his account from from Peter as he writes this. Peter, James, John, Andrew, all 12 disciples are are following Jesus. And as they're following Jesus, they're watching Jesus do these miracles. And it's like, oh, yeah, he fed 5,000 before. Oh, yeah, yeah, he can heal. Oh, 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 yeah, he can make the the lame walk. Oh, yeah, he can make. And as they're rubbing elbows with, with, with these people, there's this common denominator Amidst all these people, there's this common thing outside of a couple few occasions in, in, in John where some high priests come to him and question. For the most part, the people that are running, literally thousands of people who are hearing about Jesus are these low-income, busted-up families, broken-body men and women. It is people who otherwise are the lowest of the low. Certain accounts, if we remember the lepers, are not even allowed in the cities unless as they come into the cities have to declare unclean, unclean. Jesus now finds himself in the midst of people who predominantly would not be around a megachurch pastor, a celebrity, a man. The, the, the people that are following his entourage are not awesome. They're, 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 they're busted up people. And w- which, uh, which leads me to believe that as his disciples watch this, they go, man, Jesus sure is engaging with people who really, really need help. And, and I don't think their response from there is go, yes, these, these people are, but, but we'll get to the poor when we get to the poor. No, no, no. Immediately what we find is they engage in the same ways. Now here's why this is a big deal. And this is hopefully where all the blocks fall in line. The very beginning of our story. God chooses those people, Israel. Remember how I said that? The reason he chose those people, Israel, is because he, I, I mentioned a name very quickly in passing, but I didn't go in detail. It's this man named Abraham. And see, here's Abraham. He hasn't done anything good or bad. Matter of fact, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham falls asleep. 
And God makes this covenant with Abraham, and here is Abraham. And, and you know what God's declaration to Abraham is? Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be with you. The same declaration to you and I, the blessings of the cross. I'm going to be with you. You, you can trust me. I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people. I'm going to bless you. And you know the declaration right after this. I'm going to bless you. And if you're raised in church, you know what's coming next, so that you can be a blessing. Now, as the people of Israel go, what we're seeing slowly but surely as it continues to move, God is putting this people in a place to grow that they would follow him so that the nations, the nations would see him. In the declaration to Abraham, he says, through you, Abraham, listen very closely, all nations. So even though it's very specifically in this moment to Israel, all nations will be blessed. You know that word nations is ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity from. Every type of of people, black, white, blue, red, purple. They're all going to be blessed. Jesus in this moment is showing us these reflections that I'm going to all people originally what the people of Israel are supposed to do, but they've become inclusive. I see the Jews and I see the Pharisees. They've, make, they've made their faith about them. It's this private faith. And nowhere in this moment, Jesus begins to rub elbows. He goes to people who otherwise would not know, would not hear, would not see because of Jesus and his goodness. He, he does all these things. Now, um, that makes us go as Jesus' followers. Should we not be doing the same thing? Now, um, this, this is where we can kind of turn in our service, and I can really lay on guilt. Like, and I think some of us have been in church communities that have done that. Like a drive-by guilting, you should give money to the poor, or, you know, feed the homeless on Thanksgiving. And, 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 and there's, there's this idea that... that um, that that's really not what the motivation here is. Like, it should not be uh, in this moment that I, I try to guilt you. L- let me just lay it out to you like this. Um, the text is rampant with these ideas, with these ideas that we as Christians in the same moment should, and if this is his kingdom, very remember, remember the beginning of Mark, his kingdom has come on earth. Who is in his kingdom? Who's in his kingdom? Because he, he sent out servants to go get the Jews, or he sent out servants to get these high people, but they were busy. So you know who's in the kingdom? The people who are in the highways, the people who are in the byways, the people who were lost, who were lonely, the people who otherwise wouldn't have made it to the banquet, the people who needed it desperately. These are people who come to his banquet, broken, desperate people. Now, I can say that, and I can give you these verses, and, and, and I will. Proverbs twenty-one thirteen: If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Okay? You, you heard? 1 John 3.17, if anyone has material possession, possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Phenomenal question. Matthew 25, some will stand before Jesus and hear these words. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are accursed. And to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he replied, listen to this. So, so here's the question. Like here's, you're, you're beginning to like debate. Like, Jesus, I never saw you when you were in sick. I, I never saw you when you were hungry. I never saw you when you were poor. I never saw you when you were in prison. If you were there, I would have gone to you. Is that our, not our declaration? If, if Jesus was in prison right now, you would go see him. If he was in lower Buckeye, you would go see him right after service. And, and the declaration here, okay, so, so who are these people? Who are these people? Jesus says, no, you didn't visit me. 
This is what he says. Lord, when do we see you thirsty and need you help? He replies, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least among you, you did not do for me. This is a, a quote by um, Emperor Julian. He's the apostate in the 3rd century. Um, you have Christianity really blowing up. And you want to know why Christianity is blowing up? We just went over this in our foundations class. Christianity, Christianity is blowing up because the Christians, um, very early on, guys like Polycarp, who are disciples of John, who are with Jesus, watched Jesus what, do what he did, and they saw how much he engaged the poor. And so the church, even though they're poor themselves, um, man, they melee the poor with blessings. They, like, they would take care of um, those who couldn't afford a burial. They would feed them. They would visit them. They would take care of them. And this is what they're known for, and it's growing. And the apostate, he's an apostate, Emperor Julian, who hated Christianity, says this, Christianity has been specifically advanced through the loving service regarded to strangers and through their care of the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, for him in his mind, Jew and Christian are the same idea, who is a beggar, and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help, we should render them. Um, Jennifer Marshall, the vice president of the Heritage Foundation, says this, each of us has a personal responsibility to heed the call to care for the poor. The Bible does not leave us room to make poverty someone else's problem. We should resist the temptation to keep the poor at arm's length through the impersonal solutions or to ignore the problems in our own backyard because faraway causes grab our attention. So, so check it out. Um, here's, let me get practical and then, and then I'll wind this beast down. Here's, here's what I'm trying, trying to say to you, okay? Um, our tendency is to homogenize like very early in Jewish context. Our, our tendency is to isolate. Our tendency is to be a people who uh, like the same things that we like. When I use the word mission, 90% of you know what I'm talking about. When I use the word we're saved by grace, 95% of you know what I'm talking about. But, but, but when you begin to use some of that language when people don't know what you're talking about and you can hide behind Christian jargon, suddenly it becomes a little uncomfortable. When you start to, to go around people who are not like you, who, who maybe are, are black or white or Hispanic or poor socioeconomically, who are not like you, it becomes real difficult. And this is where Christians, where we pull out of the cause, because it's easy, according to the Heritage Foundation, to go far away. Man, I'll, I'll go to India, I'll go to Brazil, I'll go to Mexico, but my neighbor, I don't know their name. This, this, is, this is not what Christianity was founded on. And I'm not even just talking about early Christianity. I'm talking about Jesus. He's rubbing elbows with a Canaanite woman. The Jews hate Canaanites. He heals her, her daughter. He heals this man who doesn't deserve it. He is with the poor. And he does all this in these confines, as Paul would later tell us. He is in glory. He is totally sufficient. This is, this is important. Please hear this. Totally sufficient. He needs nothing. He needs nothing. He is part of the triune God who needs nothing. He is, he is perfectly satisfied in who he is. And he steps down and he becomes poor, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, so that you and I would become rich. He leaves that place of glory to be crucified on a cross when he does not deserve it so that we can enter the very glory he left. And so it's easy for us to say, yes, yeah, I can give you a track, or yes, I can give you a bottle of water. But that is not the God we serve, is it? The God we serve is ridiculously personal. The God we serve is ridiculously inclusive. Suddenly, you're, you, we're talking to, to our neighbor who's, who's 90, right? 
We're, we're, we're talking to our, our neighbor who's not the same ethnicity as us. We're, we're talking to our neighbor who, who isn't like us. Suddenly now we're, we're seeing the gospel. Jesus is beginning to engage with people, not just not like him, but who truly are in desperate need of the gospel and not just doing these as cliched as these, these silly holy huddles. They're, they're within arm's reach, right? I'll close with a story. Um, I've shared this story before, and it's always amazing to me when I um, think through it because it's just this perfect picture of, of what we've been called to do. Um, 2008, in the Olympics, uh, they were in China. I don't know if you guys remember that, but the opening ceremonies were awesome. Um, and uh, if you don't know the tradition of the Olympics, the, the home country always gets introduced last. So if you ever watch that, like, four-hour program, Zambia, you know, it's like, America. It's like, oh, my gosh. Okay, it's all these countries going through. Well, the last country comes in last, and because it's China, it's the host country. And, um, they always have, it's this huge honor for each country. Someone is bearing their flag. And here is, coming out of China, this, this small little nine-year-old boy. And he's holding hands with Yao Ming, who was a basketball player on the Rockets at the time. He's holding hands with Yao Ming. And so Yao Ming's like literally walking with him as he's holding this, right? And um, Yao's like over seven feet tall, and this little boy's reaching his hand up and holding Yao's hand. And um, Bob Costas is kind of walking through the narrative of, of what had happened and why um, this little boy, who this little boy is. And you come to find out, um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there were some earthquakes earlier that year in China, some pretty bad um, earthquakes. And this, this little boy who's now walking, was walking there, um, was in school in his third or fourth grade class, and um, he was designated, he got the responsibility to be a hall monitor um, the day the earthquakes took place in China. And so he is out in the hall monitoring the halls, and, and uh, he's doing his whole thing, and then this earthquake happens, and, and because he's in the hall, he gets out. So he gets out, and he recognizes when he gets out, no one else is out. And so he knows the way to get out. So he decides to, to climb over um, rubble and climb through holes and go to his classroom. And one by one, I kid you not, exact, the picture of Forrest Gump is perfect here. One by one, taking his classmates outside, going back in, grabbing his classmates, going outside, taking it back in. And he, he walks his whole class, his whole class. No one dies. No one is injured. No one is hurt. He takes his whole class out. Now, the interviewer is, is talking with him, and this is Bob Costa sharing this story. He, he just basically goes, hey, why did you do that? Why did you go back in? You, you could have died. There could have been another earthquake after that, and you could have died. And all this little boy, like the mind of an eight-year-old, simply just looks into the camera, and he goes, I was a hall monitor. It was my responsibility. Like nowhere in the description of hall monitor... <laughs> It's crazy to me that an, that an eight-year-old can process this. I got out. I need to go in and, and, and not just yell, to the left. No, no, to the right. No, 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 I'm going to go in to the mess that is this world. I'm going to begin to engage Muslims as much as I don't want to. I'm going to begin to engage homosexual, homosexuals as much as I don't want to. Pro, pro-choice as much as I don't want to. People who listen to NPR. Oh, my gosh. That we would embrace and we would go after the other and it would be uncomfortable because we're following the Jesus who did exactly that. The Seraphonician, the deaf, the hungry, we're called to them. May we love them, not because we're guilty too, but because we follow our Savior who's done it already. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are, for your grace for the fact that we are halfway through Mark and for us to just be able to stop and read these stories and really be reminded that it is the broken, 
physically, it is the broken spiritually, it's the broken mentally, it's, it's a mess that you are engaging. And uh, we, we pray that we would see your example and we would be little Christians, little Christ followers, that we would follow you and your example. We're grateful, God, for the men and women who have done this through the ages. We're grateful that when we have this mentality, things like Charleston, if all were Christians and had this mentality, would not take place, that we would begin to engage with people who are not like us, that conversations would be had for the sake of the gospel. We're so thankful, God, for your goodness, your divine plan, your beauty, and giving us something that makes our city better, but more than anything, honors your name. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. I I pray very specifically, every single person in this room would learn the names of their neighbors. They would learn their names. They would find the needs. They would begin to engage. It's all we would ask for this morning, that we would do that well. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.